Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. Episode 92 continues Oscar's conversation with Bill Owen of Rupp Arena, and over the next little bit, you're going to get a unique look at Rupp Arena from the business aspect. Oscar and Mr. Owen discuss the new lease agreement with UK, and scattered throughout this podcast is information on the new renovations that will be taking place to enhance the fan experience. There are some attendance numbers to analyze, and how does television affect the attendance at Rupp Arena? The NBA in Lexington? Bill Owen explains. The Boys Sweet 16 High School Tournament has enjoyed a healthy relationship with Rupp Arena as well as the NCAA Tournament and other events, and we'll get Oscar and Mr. Owen's thoughts on the iconic venue playing host. We'll go behind the concession stand to learn about those operations, and Mr. Owen and Oscar will dive into the entertainment side of both Rupp Arena and the Lexington Opera House. There are some ticket purchasing tips to share and never one to shy away from the tough questions. Oscar asks the question about the biggest mystery surrounding Rupp Arena, the King, and the Colonel. Rupp Arena is much more than basketball games, monster trucks, and concerts. The team off the court that pulls it all together day after day, night after night, their coach is Bill Owen. And he's on this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. 2026, Rupp Arena will be 50 years old. Uh, your current 15-year lease goes past that, obviously. Goes, through, goes 33. 33. Probably nobody around right now in an administrative position will be around in, in those same capacities probably in 2033. What do you foresee happening then? Well, I, that's hard to predict. Uh, you know, with this new agreement, uh, UK will have been in Rupp Arena 58 years, almost 60 years. And sports arenas, they don't last that long. I mean, you can name dozens of them. Uh, uh, Seattle Kingdom, uh, uh, Market Square Arena, uh, the Omni. Uh, just they, they blew up Charlotte Coliseum after only 19 years. Uh, we got, uh, I used to say, can I say underwear? I got underwear yes. 18, 19 <laughs> years old. You know, got neckties, socks. Uh, they're just, they're, they're disposable um, facilities and replaced, particularly because of the way the industry has changed so fast. Um, not only sports, but, but entertainment. You know, the, uh, uh, we got, uh, we've got a, a date booked June the 1st with Paul McCartney for a concert that's got 173,000 pounds of production equipment hanging from the ceiling. Just these shows have gotten huge, and not all buildings can play them. Uh, and and that's, become, that's driven a lot 
well, if we're going to stay in this business, we got to have a different kind of facility. But for UK to be in Rupp Arena almost 60 years, I mean, that's remarkable. But people really are going to see that over the next three years, you're seeing a whole new body going to be uh, uh, attached to the bones of Rupp Arena. Uh, it's a whole completely different structure. Uh, it gets a new exterior all the way around. It gets a different concourse. It gets some of the concourses expanded. Uh, this is going to be a, a uh, metamorphosis that, that is, until it plays out, you know, the, the guy on the street is not going to be able to appreciate until they see it develop. What will people in the lower arena see different as to where they're sitting, if anything? Well, people in the lower arena really won't see anything different. Uh, but as you're walking around the concourse on the corners, on those, uh, on on uh, three of those corners or two of those corners will be expanded where the pinch points are, where the, the soft serve ice cream is. And that will be saved. Those, those corners. The other thing you'll see is the, 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 uh, the bulkheads that now you've got an aisle that goes into a vomitory and down the steps, all of that's going to be opened up to where you're going to be able to, to look into the arena from those corners. Uh, that row of exit doors along High Street, there, you're going to be able to walk down the sidewalk on High Street and actually look into the arena. Um, now, we'll have to develop a blackout condition for concerts and things like that, but, but it's going to be a, a, a much different environment. Will there be any improved facilities for people with uh, disabilities as far as going up into the upper deck, will there be any more elevators? We're, well, we're, no, there won't be any more elevators. We're, we're looking at that. Uh, you know, the upper deck as a condition, if you have to be in, in an evacuation standpoint, you got to be concerned about what are your, what are your capacities to shelter in place uh, because you can't physically get people out fast enough. Uh, it's been probably six years or so, but we put some wheelchair accessible seating in the upper arena on the downstage end there at section 219 and 227 maybe. Uh, we're looking at whether or not, and working with the university, whether or not there are some other areas in the upper arena uh, to put some uh, wheelchair accessible seating. Um, no escalators? Oh, there'll be a lot of escalators in the concourse area. Uh, you know, out, out uh, from uh, entry uh, from outside, but no escalators to get you from the from the uh, third level concourse to the upper arena. Is that a problem for any of your events, sir? No, no, not really. Let's get down to the meat of, of what people like to know. Let's let's talk about as far back as your record shows actual in house attendance for Kentucky basketball games turnstile account i know the university through the ncaa can count in their official attendance such things as median attendance workers in attendance from concessions tv people coming in but most fans want players to know, bands, players bands, uh, referees uh, whatever uh, ref just whatever uh, but actual paid turnstile count well you go back 10 years you want to start this year and go backwards or you sure. want to start 10 years ago and go forward either way okay well let's start 10 years ago let's start now and, and well we'll start 10 years yes. ago we'll start with with yes. uh, 9 and 10 uh average attendance uh these are scanned tickets we now we still use turnstiles we don't use them anymore 
because there just isn't room to put uh, the turnstile and the magnetometer and the bag check and all of that. Uh, and with a scanner, you don't need the turnstile. Is every ticket that you scan got a price on it? Uh, no, there are credential tickets with barcodes, uh, for example, to media. Okay, so these are in the figures that scan. These are too? in the figures that are scanned. Okay. Those tickets, but there are also there are also passes and access that's granted on some basis. Such as recruits and recruits families, yeah, probably that, that that are not that are not scanned. Yeah. But if you go back to to nine ten, uh, average uh, tickets average scan tickets per game was twenty thousand nine hundred sixty eight. Uh, ten eleven season twenty thousand and nine. Uh, 11, 12, 20,474. Now that was a, a national championship year. Um, and of course, nine, 10, was that uh, coach Cal's first year? First was year, the yes. John Wall, yes. uh, DeMarcus Cousins. So there was a lot of enthusiasm. And Charlie Coates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 12, 13, 19,013 tickets scanned. 13, 14, 18,305. Uh, uh, 2014, 15, 19,527 scanned, uh, 2015, 16, 18,560, uh, 16, 17, 19,003, uh, 17, 18, 17,271. And so far this year through nine games, scanned tickets, 13,758. Uh, that average is down because there was one game, I think it was North Dakota. 9,900. That, that was a 9 o'clock game. People are coming out in their car at about 6.30, 7 o'clock to come to the game, and it's freezing rain, and their car's covered with ice, and it's on television, and they're playing North Dakota. And they turn around and go back in the house. Yeah, yeah. So it, you're going to have that. The, the other thing, that the other phenomenon that, that has happened, I think, is – um, you know, I, the, the, the 65 inch flat screen TV in the man cave, um, people associating, getting together, uh, sports bars, uh, to where, you know, the cheering environment is there. Is this a concern for you beyond UK basketball as far as concerts? And no, other no, it, it's really, it's really impacting uh, the national trends are it's impacting live sporting events more than anything. Uh, that there's just a dynamic with the, the upcoming generation where uh, actually being there uh, is and, – and one of the things there were – you know, that's one of the reasons we, we spent the money putting in high-density Wi-Fi. There are some places that a, that, uh, a millennial won't go unless they've got uh, connectivity to the Internet. I was up to a Pacers game last year, and it's amazing now the technology they brought in and what all they're doing with their digital system. I mean, you're sitting there and you know you're you're clicking things that coaches are clicking and everything. If you want to know what John Wall did the last twelve minutes, you punch a button and it's there. And it seems like I've been hearing some talk where at some places they're going to let you take your iPad to where you'll be able to go in and click on certain cameras that the facility is using for their in-house video. One, one of the things, one of the experiences that, that, motivated, me, that motivated me the most to, to hurry up and get uh, high-density Wi-Fi in there um, 
was, uh, you know, they had the, uh, we were playing North Carolina. Kentucky was playing North Carolina, and they set up one of those uh, 360-degree cameras at center court that took a high-resolution camera, and then you could go online and find yourself in the photograph, click on yourself, and put your name on it. And when that developed and came out, I, I went that, and a lot of people, a lot of your listeners will, will remember that, they did the same thing at 2012, I think, national championship game in New Orleans. And I was stunned the number of people that were in the first 10 rows or so while that camera's going around. They've got their iPhone hang, uh, you know, a foot from in front of their face. And, and my goodness, they're eight rows from the floor, and they're, and they're looking at a three-inch uh, screen. Yes. Well, you know, that's, that's, that, that's like uh, it's like when I – did the family vacation to the Grand Canyon? I, I I took all the pictures that you, it's so grand and and expansive. You, you take a lot of pictures, but there's a tendency that you're looking at it through a camera viewfinder rather than just with your eye. Just put the phone down and 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 use your eyes for a minute and experience uh, what you're doing. And and that's one of the things that I think is happening uh, with major uh, public attendance. It has not hit the concert industry. I think part of that, too, particularly when you get in the Final Fours and you're playing in football stadiums, where there probably is a reason to look at your iPhone rather than look down yeah, yeah. 500 feet away. If you're, if you're trying – I mean, you're watching it on a screen then anyway because yeah. the, cause the, uh, the player, actual players on the floor uh, are about a half inch tall. You, you have any record on what the largest turnstile count on any game has ever been? Yeah. You know, we we keep records back a long way. Uh, I guess the the largest go back to that nine ten season. Uh, North Carolina game on December fifth was twenty three thousand fifty seven. Now this is now, still minus. That's minus the the, the people meat. in the building yeah. that are not ticketed in that game. I don't know whether UK was issuing barcoded passes to media or not. But that didn't include four or five hundred employees, ushers, ticket takers, uh, committee of one hundred and one, all of those right. folks. So you know, twenty three thousand fifty seven. That's a that was a full, full, full house. Yeah. Well, what what's been the uh, smallest crowd? Well, the smallest in my memory by far is that North Dakota game with uh, nine thousand nine hundred forty one. I mean that that's just a real anomaly uh, to get. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that under 10,000 was possible, but I guess weather conditions and opponent and time of year, it, uh, it, it proved that, that it could be. Uh, the, uh, uh, and if, you know, over that 10-year spread of, of years that I gave you, I mean, it's, it's consistently 18, 19, 20,000, uh, which as an average – you can't play Florida for the for the conference championship or North Carolina or Louisville. every game. Every game. So if you're averaging 19, there's probably three or four in there in the 14, 15,000 range. 16. Yes, yes, and and that that impacts your average. Uh, what other uh, municipalities around the country that has a unique situation like the city of Lexington and Rupp, where you got the college team playing in a city-owned facility? There, there's not many. I mean, of course, the one 80 miles to the west with the Yum Brand Center uh, is one. I think UConn plays some of their games in uh, uh, a public facility. I think it's the XL Arena in Hartford. Mm-hmm. 
obviously, St. John's plays some of their games at Madison Square Garden. Um, the um, Does Marquette play in the one in Milwaukee? or do you I don't out? know. I don't know. There, but there's not very many of them. I and think Memphis UNLV, used to. UNLV plays. Well, no, UNLV, I think, owns the Thomas they and do. Mack Center. They do. There's not very many of them. There's not very many. They're usually, you know, the 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 uh, the majority, overwhelming majority, is campus owned, campus located, university owned. Just for the moment, about Rupp outside UK. How's the business been for Rupp for non UK events? Has it been on an uptick? And if so, yeah, what's probably we entered into an agreement, a partnership with a group called Oakview Group. They apparently are going to build a new. Uh, uh, arena at the University of Texas at Austin uh, and lease it uh, and after a long-term lease, give it to them. So it, they, they're they're a cutting-edge group, certainly to say the least. Oakview Group was founded by a guy named Tim Lewicki, who is a former chairman of AEG Entertainment, uh, Irving, Irving Azoff, who's essentially the founder of Ticketmaster, and uh, Madison Square Garden Entertainment. And they they have several of their activities. One is a booking service, which they do for Rep Arena. Uh, and together with uh, relationships with, with uh, major promoters like Live Nation and others uh, have stepped up uh, the, uh, the utilization uh, at Rupp, including, you know, big entertainers like, uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, Paul McCartney coming that, although we've been working with uh, Paul McCartney before associating with them. We did four concerts, uh, Wednesday through Saturday, beginning with Hellstrom on Wednesday, Trans-Siberian Orchestra on Thursday, uh, Alabama on Friday, and Snoop Dogg on Saturday. 27,000 people, and I can't imagine that any one of them went to more than a single show because <laughs> they, they were all four vastly different forms of, of uh, types of artists. How financially successful has Rupp been over the past, say, 10 years? Well, I think it's been hugely successful. You know, I, 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 I talked about the uh, infusion of, into the capital project, but if you look at over 42 years, I used to keep a, I, I kept a graph of, uh, of just what the community had to pay out of the general fund uh, to support Lexington Center, and it's the convention center, the shops, Rupp Arena, Triangle Park, and the Opera House, uh, which is a jewel of a, of a building from 1886 restored, and, and so thankful that it was. Um, the... Uh, Lexington Center has paid 100% of its operating expenses and, and all but about 15% of its capital improvements and debt service. Um, that's before the $30 million that is coming into this new project. And for the city to, to have the benefit of those facilities for its citizens uh, with, with only having to pay 15% of its, of its uh, uh, debt cost and none of its operating costs, that's, that's a remarkable uh, success story financially. Is there any policy uh, with the LCC whereby, say, the University of Louisville or any other school could come in and rent a facility to play a game or games? The University of Kentucky, in their agreement, has the exclusive right to present collegiate basketball. Um, the, 
so when we do, obviously when we do NCAA or, or uh, uh, there was some consideration to do an OVC tournament uh, at one point. Uh, but if it's collegiate basketball, uh, UK would have to approve that. Who controls the signage at Rupp Arena? Uh, under the new agreement, the University of Kentucky. Um, it started uh, in 76 with, University, with the Lexington Center controlling the signage. Of course, there really was no signage. There was a couple of, you know, I remember a Delta Airlines uh, a backlit panel associated with a, with a scoreboard. Uh, when we put hockey in, in 1995, uh, we increased all of the backlit panels because you had those hustle boards that had penalty clock and and uh, for basketball games, they had the five players on the floor and their point statistics, and, and you had a different uh, environment. So we stepped it up uh, and went from a very nominal amount of revenue to, as I recall, about $350,000 or so in, in revenue from annual revenue from advertising signage. Uh, in that 98 renegotiation, uh, the university felt like they could exploit that signage and get more for it, and uh, so it shifted over to them, um, and they had it for a while, and I think they bundled some of it for some other things, and, and they were focused on, uh, they didn't have a media partner doing it they were trying to do it themselves and they i don't think they had the success they anticipated but then the 2000 renovation when we first put in uh video screens in the corners uh, in working with them and the renovation we just needed to have that revenue uh to pay for that video system and so we negotiated to get it uh, back and and we kept it until July 1st, 2018, at which point it goes back to UK. Uh, they are paying uh, a fee for it annually, uh, but it now is controlled by the University of Kentucky. I, I know in the 70s and 80s you didn't have all that many games on TV, but how much does TV impact the revenue of that particular the signage on the floor? Huge. Uh, the uh, I, I, Our former media partner, uh, Learfield Sports did a uh, an analytics of uh, viewers, national viewers, uh, for uh, at UK games over a year, and as I recall, it was over 25 million, uh, almost twice uh, the viewership of the Los Angeles Lakers. Now that's for memory. So I, but but it was it was an astounding number, uh, and I think that 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 because it's the University of Kentucky brand. I think that's one of the reasons we see a lot of 8.30 and 9 o'clock games because if, if they can pick up the television viewing audience for the Mountain and Pacific time zones, they're going to watch University of Kentucky or Duke or North Carolina uh, or that level. So there's a, there's a tendency from a television programming standpoint to, to try to position those games uh, later to pick up that audience. And particularly that big banner across from the TV right there on the floor, you see on just about every second of TV, and oh, it's yeah. rotating. Yeah, yeah. I assume that brings yeah, the, premium the, dollar. Yeah, the, the court side, uh, the court side where uh, uh, that's between the benches, yeah. There's great debate in Louisville about the possibility of an NBA franchise or either expansion or a one moving there. Do you think the uh, 
LCC and or the city council or the public would ever consider uh, playing a mini-season schedule in cahoots with a Louisville entry into the NBA? Well, you remember the Kentucky Colonels played uh, games in Rupp uh, back in the 70s. Well, I don't think they ever made it to Rupp. They played it to Coliseum. Yeah, you may be right. Yeah, but, but I can. I, and Joe Hall fought it very bitterly, much like Rick yeah. Pitino and Tom Jury. But but there have been, you know, interestingly, when when the the Charlotte Hornets and their owner George Shin uh, first uh, began talking about Louisville before they moved to the New Orleans uh, Pelicans, uh, they were looking at Louisville and they were looking at regionally where could they establish and play some games while a, an arena was under construction in Louisville and they came by and looked at Rupp I think they looked at um, uh, I think they looked at at the Coliseum in Cincinnati they looked at some other buildings so there was some consideration given to that and you know we do host uh, NBA expansion uh, NBA uh, exhibition games occasionally uh, it, it typically it does its best if it's attached to a, a former uh, Kentucky player, uh, but uh, you know that would be. I think that that could be considered, uh, but um, I don't know of any. There's no active discussion about that. I know last year or this year. Uh, I don't know where he had a game last year or not, but I know you didn't have one this year. The NBA cut their preseason schedule back two games last year uh, for each club. Uh, would would that have an effect on future games coming here? Is it just totally going to be involved with well, UK players? I, the, 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 I think it's going to be UK players, but we have we have demonstrated for those who would who want to promote uh, uh, exhibition game, we've we've demonstrated that the community will support it, and and they can come in and expect to. Uh, be successful financially. You're a very popular partner with the KHSAA and the Boys State High School Tournament. Yeah. Yeah. They're just a, a wonderful organization to work with. Uh, the, uh, you know, there was a time that they were at, uh, at Freedom Hall and then they came back to Rupp and then there was, I think it was during the Basler administration that they kind of, Everybody kind of made an agreement. Well, we'll alternate years between uh, Louisville and Lexington, and when they go to Louisville, uh, they just wouldn't get the attendance. And and you know, the players, the fans, they want to be where the University of Kentucky plays. And Lexington, being so centrally located, there was activities to do around the arena, the downtown environment, and uh, just a, a, a different ambiance. So clearly. Rupp is established as the home of the high school boys Sweet 16, and and of course this next spring we're also hosting the uh, the girls Sweet 16 the next week. Is this a situation where you sort of have to break your mold and and put together special packages for the benefit of all, rather than just charging a flat fee like you would any concert or anything? It's a different dynamic. Yeah, it's a different dynamic. Concerts are you know concert. Uh, can be all across the board. Uh, sometimes it in, includes staffing. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it includes a facility fee. Um, there are, you know, if it's uh, uh, if th- there's Ticketmaster uh, 
revenues uh, for being our official ticketing organization. So it, it's you find a way to make it work. The the high school Sweet 16 they have eight sessions and it's it traditionally has always been 10% of ticket revenue with a cap on rent of a hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's that's a fairly good four day uh, uh, rental. Uh, and that does not include reimbursable expenses and, and some other, you know, incidentals. Rupp has always been a very popular uh, stop on the NCA circuit of March Madness. Anything in the works there for the Well, we've got, the, we got 21 first and second round. Um, so we, we've hosted a lot of, uh, uh, we've hosted a lot of, of, uh, of NCAA over the years. Uh, and, one of the reasons they come here is because of the support they get from the Lexington Center staff and from the facility. Uh, of course, the, the crowning achievement was the 85 Final Four. 85 Final Four, 86 Women's Final Four. I, I, I guess there's one out there, but I don't know other venues that have hosted back-to-back men's and women's or women's and men's Final Fours, which we did in 85 and 86. The current situation with up until a few years ago, they went away from venues uh, on campuses or in cities that weren't a dome stadium for the regional finals. Now they've come back to some swallows. They, they, they made a decision a number of years ago that they wanted uh, to, to test drive uh, a Final Four venue with a regional semifinal. But they've broken that rule several times. I mean, the the uh, the, the last Kentucky played in a facility in uh, New Jersey was it? Yes. Uh, that was that was not a, a, a dome stadium uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we have done first and second round actually from for the community from a uh, uh, economic impact basis. Depending on who the eight teams are, you get more of a pl- of a positive. Uh, for the community with a first and second round than you do with a regional because uh, it's played out over a longer period and you got ultimately uh, possibly more people coming. But but we'll take either one. Uh, we'll take either one, you know, and we've hosted the last three years we've had a women's uh, first and second round or a regional. And uh, uh, the, the attendance has just been, we had the misfortune to get a draw that I think included Washington or Stanford or, you know, a number of West Coast teams, and it was harder for them to travel. Um, and then you had one bad year of the season here. That, yeah. That yeah. ESPN ran a documentary on sports venues around the country and the challenges they were having in food preparation. And they were compared it to a restaurant that might have, say, three or 400 customers in a day where you had to pass all the health inspections and make sure that somebody didn't do something here or a broken lamp wasn't laying there. And then they compared it to sports venues of 10,000 up to 60,000. What safeguards do you have at Rupp and how do you police that? I shouldn't say police it, watch over it. Well, we do our own concessions. Uh, we don't have a concessionaire, so it's all Lexington Center employees. Uh, we do stay in, in close contact with the Fayette County Health Department, and we're inspected just like any other food supplier 
uh, on a routine basis, and, and we, we score pretty well in the high 90s. One of the, when you're talking about food service at Rupp, you got to remember uh, that it was built in 1976, and if you saw, saw our kitchen commissary, you would realize, well, we can pop popcorn and we can bake pizza, but everything else pretty much has to, to, uh, to come in, and uh, we have real limited capacity of just what we can prepare. Uh, in the 2000 renovation, we did equip uh, the major stands up on the concourse with the ability to to uh, to warm up a chicken breast, a barbecue sandwich, a uh, uh, a uh, uh, hamburger. Uh, of course, hot dogs. We've branded over the years some of our stands with either Gold Star Chili or we've now got uh, Edley's Barbecue. Uh, we got a Chick Fil A. But all of that is pre-cooked, most of it off-site, and then brought in and just held to temperature for the event. Uh, and there are limitations related to what we're able to do with that. We're working on that, and it's a priority for us to um, improve the, the food service selection. You go into a, a more contemporary arena, you can find everything from uh, standing rib roast to sushi. And uh, we're just not equipped to, to, to provide that type of a menu selection. During your 28 years, what's been the most unique thing to happen at Rupp? Oh, wow. Um, I'd have to devote some thought to that. I, I guess motorcycle ice racing. Now, explain uh, that. That was pretty unique. Um, back when we did hockey, uh, or it was after after hockey left, but we still had the capability to, to make an ice sheet, which we don't anymore. And there was an event out there that had uh, uh, four-wheel ATVs and motorcycles with spikes in the tires that would race inside the hockey dasher. Um, and that was pretty unique. Um, you know, the Feld Corporation, which is... Uh, uh, owned Ringling Brothers Circus, but also Marvel Universe and Disney on Ice and, and some of those really kind of exotic. The Marvel Universe, for example, uh, was a, uh, they had a production grid above the ceiling to where they acted out the Marvel comic book heroes in an episode that was pretty fascinating to watch. I anytime we do motorsports, you know, when, when I see when I see 80 tandem dump truck loads of dirt come in and spread around on the floor with uh, front end loaders and, and uh, 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 earth moving equipment. I mean, you got to sell a lot of tickets to pay for and, that. And, and you play the event and then they clean it all up and, and get all the dirt out and we do uh, basketball two days later. Just the, the gamut of activity and diversity that you can see in a uh, uh, an event like that monster trucks where you've got you know you've got grave digger and some of the other monster trucks that are jumping over and crushing cars and, um, and it's just uh what a business uh, it's it's just really interesting how many employees do you have at Rupp? we have 120 full-time employees and actually because we do our own uh, concessions and security guest services we have over 700 part-time employees rostered they don't all work every event, but uh, you know they're given the opportunity to work uh, to, to get staffed for a variety of events. So it's uh, it's it's a pretty sizable organization. What's been your biggest challenge in 28 years? I guess um, 
keeping up with technological changes, uh, digital media certainly. Uh, I think uh, the issue uh, that was brought about with uh, 9-11-2001 and how that has changed our industry from a patron safety standpoint, uh, you know, you remember uh, prior to that, you know, you get your ticket, you hand your ticket, they tear it in half, and you walk through the turnstile, and there you go. And, and now we're in an environment where, where we have to have security that's, that's uh, you know, looking in, a, in handbags, you're walking through a magnetometer, uh, the investment of, of those things, and just keeping people uh, secure and safe coming to events and the challenges with that. Uh, can be uh, uh, has has been uh, paramount and a, a paradigm shift in our business. How big a line item is that in your budget security? Uh, it varies with events, and typically with with events, it's passed along to the promoter. Uh, with us in plant security, you know, we've got uh, we've got uh, uh, plant security on a, on a twenty four hour basis. Uh, and then the event, depending on the size of event, I, I don't know the, the exact number. It's going to vary, but, but it's a sizable uh, uh, contribution. Just the, the magnetometers alone, as I recall, were you know, in, the, in the range of $300,000. When you came out of school and went to work for a living, did you ever dream at that point you would end up your career where you're at right now? No, I had no idea. I... Uh, uh, I was a history major at the University of Kentucky, and I hope my transcript burned up with the administration building because <laughs> it's because it's it's a part of my life I'd probably like to go back and do again. <laughs> uh, I, I walked through the doors that were that opened. Um, I um, uh, I student taught uh, at Bryan Station High School in 1973, and there were four classes. Uh, and two of them American history and two of them sociology. And the plan with uh, uh, the, uh, the teacher uh, was that I would teach two of the classes for half of my student teaching and the other two classes for the next half. Well, the day before I was supposed to take over, he suffered a heart attack mm. and, and was out until the day that I came was the day before I was scheduled to leave. So I wound up having all four, four classes I was offered a, a teaching position that next semester after his retirement. That was his next to last semester teaching. And uh, I found a job uh, leasing shopping centers uh, for uh, a local shopping center developer uh, that I had worked summer employment with and, and, and weekday employment with cleaning parking lots at night. Uh, Village Square Shopping Center in Middlesboro. Carnaby Square in London, uh, Beaumont Square in Harrodsburg, uh, Franklin Square in Frankfurt, and I had this van with, with a with a, a cleaner, riding uh, street sweeper that I would go leave it to plan to get there at nine o'clock at night and you know do two two nights a week, uh, and that employer offered me four hundred dollars a year more than than Fayette County Public Schools was paying for a start up. Uh, Plus, you like to visit Middlesbrough. Well, I, but that that got me started in commercial real estate, and which I've been in my entire life. And if you think about, you know, Rupp Arena and the convention center, it's it, it, it's you're leasing real estate, maybe just for a few hours, but you're still managing and leasing and operating a, a commercial real estate asset. And uh, 
had another job or two, wound up, uh, spent six years with uh, uh, former Governor Wallace Wilkinson uh, working with uh, his commercial real estate investments before he ran for governor. Uh, uh, when he decided to run for governor, that I, I decided to, to apply my efforts elsewhere. So I, I went and worked for Don Dudley Webb for six years. And uh, the... Uh, you know, the real estate market can go up and down. And in the late 80s, it went down as a result of the Tax Reform Act of 1987. And, and that, but that was right about the time that this need that caused the problem or the issue with the, the owner of the Hyatt and the mall suffered the same issue. And while Lexington Center bought uh, uh, those assets, and that's what brought me to Lexington Center. So I've been very blessed and fortunate uh, to have been at Lexington Center 28 years and had the, the honor of, of uh, being its CEO for 19 of those years and, and the terrific staff there. There are, uh, there are, are, are 22 uh, core management folks between five department directors and, and uh, uh, myself and 16 department managers. And if you did, if you calculated, last time I did it, I calculated the, the collective years of experience of those 22 people in Rupp Arena and Lexington Center, and it's over 500 years. So there's just a, a tremendous depth of knowledge and, uh, and capability with the staff at Lexington Center. And they're the reason that it's been successful over the years. Once you took over and these last seven years, did you know that that is where you're going to end up at? After I'd worked there about 10 years, I, I thought to myself, huh, well, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. So sometimes it's about, you know, walking through the doors that are open. And it's like I think it was Yogi Berra that said 90% of any job is just showing up. I mean, I've always just tried to show up. What's the biggest event you've ever held at Rupp Arena? Oh, it had to be Garth Brooks. Um it would have to be that that two day experience, um, you know. In in terms of planning, though, watching the the planning for uh, NCAA tournaments uh, is is uh, pretty significant uh, because it's multi day where you're addressing a lot of different things. Um, so, uh, and a lot of it is the the same event uh, over and over, uh, but. And, and what we always try to do is, is make each one uh, as special as the last. Do you look forward to the next 10, 15 years of this job? I, I'm, I'm getting up and going to work every day. I mean, now that this project is underway, it's, it's, if I had an exit strategy, I've kind of lost it, Oscar. <laughs> one last question. Uh, you've got to have the answer to this, and you probably don't. But I've got to ask you. How many tickets have yet to be redeemed for a refund from the Elvis Presley? Concert? I don't know. I don't know. The uh, that was 1977, and and I think actually that that I'm told by my predecessor Tom Minner that 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 event uh, because so many people kept their ticket as a souvenir led to uh, court cases that went all the way to the Kentucky Supreme Court for a decision because. Whose money was it? The money was in was in the Lexington Center ticket office. Whose money was it? Was it the promoters, Colonel Tom Parker, uh, 
Was it Elvis's family? Was it the venue? Whose was it? Um, you know, a, a similar thing happened. We've had two Aerosmith concerts cancel. After one of them, one of them, it was set. Uh, they were ready for sound check. They were hazing the arena, uh, and uh, uh, it was canceled like two hours before the doors were set to open. And if you bought your ticket from Ticketmaster, and today if if a show gets canceled, you bought from Ticketmaster with a credit card, the refund is automatic and pretty much instantaneous. Back in those days, you know, you had Ticketmaster outlets or you'd come to the ticket office, but you had to go to the outlet where you bought the ticket. used to be Kroger's, I think, uh, to get a, a, a refund. If you bought your ticket from from John Doe on the corner in front of the arena or in the hotel lobby or wherever that you don't know where he bought that ticket. You did had no idea where to redeem it. The other thing we've got now, and certainly one of the other things that has changed, is uh, is the ticketing business. You know, you can go online, print your ticket at home, and deliver it uh, and get into the event. But if you buy a printed home ticket from somebody that you don't know on the street corner or on a ticket reseller broker, you don't know whether he's printed that ticket and made a hundred photocopies of it on a high quality printer, a copier or not. And the first barcode that gets scanned, that's who owns the seat. That happened to me in the 2007 final four in, in Atlanta. Uh, my wife, Donna and I were guests of, uh, of uh, Dave uh, Kaywood and his wife. Yeah. You remember Dave? And we were sitting down, I mean, five rows up from the floor, and a guy comes in, and the police are with him. And somebody had taken a ticket and photocopied it, and he was in there, and, you know, first morning there, he got it. Yeah, you just be sure and buy your ticket from the from the official ticket outlet. But I guess the one thing is for certain is uh, you do not have any supply of University of Kentucky tickets for sale. No. No, that's a, that's an absolute no. Many thanks to Bill Owen for taking his time out of his busy schedule to join us on this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. If you missed part one of Oscar's conversation with Bill Owen, it's episode 91, and it's available at oscarcombs.com, as well as many other great conversations Oscar has had. Those conversations include Ralph Hacker, Mike Pratt, John Y. Brown, and Cotton Nash. All episodes of Conversations are available at iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Search for at Wildcat News and subscribe for free. For more with Oscar, go ahead and follow him on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. I'm Bo Robinson, and I thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. And as always, go Big Blue.